everybody, and welcome to another edition of HR Evolution. It is a revolution of the HR function for the evolution of business. My name is Chris Theron. We want to welcome you. We're joined by my partner, Bobby, today, and we've got a great guest in Lewis Garrett, who is joining us all the way from the other side of the globe in Singapore. Uh, Lewis is the managing partner of Singapore for Mercer. We'll let him tell us a little bit more about his background when we get started. But just again, another reminder, our show is all about how do we help HR professionals and HR practitioners really elevate themselves to provide more value to the business. We talk about transitioning from the transactional, more administrative sides of HR to that more strategic side of HR. Uh, and every week, we learn something from our guests that we didn't know before. Hopefully, you're learning from our guests as well. So we're super excited for today's episode. Bobby, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Absolutely. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate the intro. Uh, Bobby Spaziani here. Uh, you've seen me on the podcast here before. Um, you know, Chris and, and Kevin Russell, and myself kind of have this, um, this shared interest, as, as Chris had mentioned, of, you know, sort of revolutionizing HR, bringing strategic HR to the forefront, um, teaching business leaders, teaching HR leaders how to sit at the table, um, how, to, how to be a part of C-suite conversations, um, and no better way to do it than invite guests on like Lewis. So with that, Lewis, um, we'll turn it over to you and let you introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks, uh, gentlemen. It's really, really great to be here. Uh, so yeah, you know, as you said, I'm a partner at Mercer. Um, I have uh, been on an interesting journey. I'm a workplace psychologist. I uh, studied in the UK, got my master's in what we call occupational psychology, but it's basically IO psych. Turns out that's really a statistics degree about people at work. And as you can imagine, that's become incredibly topical for the modern HR function. I spent the first half of my career in the UK, working all across Europe, mostly in the area of employee engagement and culture. Uh, and uh, that was tremendously interesting work. And then I've spent the last 10 years or so in, in Singapore, uh, working in Asia. Uh, I spent five years of that doing the same thing. I actually was uh, started the, the sort of business uh, that I came from Europe into Asia, ran like a startup here, expanded it. Uh, we sold that organization to Mercer a few years back. And I've now run our HR consulting business for Mercer Singapore. So, so I have really great team of incredibly talented people who work for me, about nearly about 60 of them doing rewards, talent, transformation type work across the full range of different sorts of HR challenges and business and people challenges, basically. So it's been a pretty exciting journey. And um, yeah, as I said, you know, the, the background in workplace psych gives me this, this very strong data grounding which has just seems to have gathered speed over the last 15 years or so so it's been really interesting that's great and definitely all those topics all those areas of expertise are as important today as they've ever been right so we'll dig it we'll dig a little deeper into some of those topics with you lewis but we we like to start with an easy one for you so you know we'll just throw this out there What's one thing maybe people wouldn't know about you, you know, just by looking at your LinkedIn profile or, you know, just by knowing you from the, from the work you're doing professionally, what's one thing that, you know, our audience should know about you? Uh, well, 
you know, I am, uh, I can be a bit of an obsessive person. I completed an Ironman triathlon oh, a few years oh. back. Yeah. The one in Malaysia, it's a difficult one. It teaches you a lot about life doing that sort of thing. It's, uh, it's like having a second job. Not many people know that about me. I now with a family and other commitments, it's difficult to maintain that kind of uh, uh, lifestyle. It's really a lifestyle doing that kind of thing. But uh, it, it was an amazing journey, the discipline and effort and just uh, focus that it takes to complete a race that you know more than 12 hours long exactly. so um not many people know that about me <laughs> but i thought maybe you would be interested yeah that's fantastic <laughs> and i mean talk about the discipline you need to do it so it's it's it takes years and years to get yourself up to that level so that's really cool thanks for sharing yeah. that with us um, i'm gonna i'm gonna come right out of the gate you know and talk about employee engagement um and it's something that's near and dear to a lot of organizations hearts right now as they look at you know, this new working environment, you know, a, a hybrid, if you will, you know, here in the States, a lot of organizations have opened up their offices again, but they've got kind of still some remote workers, some coming in the office a couple of days a week, and then, you know, some fully back in the office. So from an engagement standpoint, tell us a little bit about the recent trends you've seen, you know, and one of the major changes maybe from previous years, given that the world has just gone through this global pandemic, you know, what has that done to employee engagement? Yeah, it's a great question. So we collect a lot of data about this. Yeah, millions of employees respond to surveys that we're running both you know, on our own platforms and with partners. And what we've seen in 2020, what we saw in 2020 was actually a spike in improvement in uh, levels of engagement. If you measure it as proud, motivated, committed employees, uh, who would say their employer is a great place to work. You know, they enjoy working where they work. We saw uh, acceleration of engagement. And looking at the data, a lot of that was because actually a lot of organizations responded very empathetically, increased the levels of communication. It's funny that we've all been sent home to work outside of the office, but that's created a lot more management discipline around mm -hmm quality of communication levels of empathy kindness and care you can't manage by presenteeism your boss can't just see you in the office and say that person is doing his or her job so they actually have to actively try to support you in a, uh, in a better way and that resulted in better employee attitudes you know more positive attitudes nice. this year uh, you know, we're still crunching through the data, but we're expecting to see things bump back down to um, reality, basically. But burnout has really set in. What we saw during the pandemic, actually, although many organizations responded really positively, people felt this strange combination, depending on the kind of work they're doing. I, I don't want to overgeneralize, but let's say for certainly workers that were able to work remotely, look, feeling isolated and overwhelmed often um, at the same time, which is a strange combination of thoughts and feelings, but being separated from their organization so quickly and then usually being given a vast number of new digital channels through which to act, interact with other people, you know, digital transformation arrived uh, at pace and this huge influx of new information. And so, I found the recent Microsoft work trend study really interesting because you can see there the huge increase. I think it was, they compared emails sent 
in February 2021 with emails sent in February 2020. And there was an extra 40 billion wow. or something sent. Yeah, which and Microsoft has the best yeah. data on yeah. that. So you can imagine the impact that has on people. And then we can talk about this, the number of meetings that people attend exactly. just yeah. spiked up, you know, just... Um, so, so we're now starting to see that take its toll. Life overall is generally less satisfying yeah. um, in many places, which has, has left people to really reconsider. And we're seeing that turn up in behavioral data. So in the United States, you know, I'm sure it hit the media there, but um, huge, you know, this great resignation or great reshuffle, whatever you want to call it, yeah. record levels of people leaving their jobs. And interestingly, in areas where actually it's not people working remotely, a lot of the people quitting are those people in fixed roles where they're showing up in person. Yeah. So, you know, that's the sort of thing that's creating labor shortages. So it's just been, it's really, it's been a very interesting period. The other thing I just want to mention is, um, as I said, engagement went up. We're, we're expecting to see that level off a bit or at least um, maybe come down because of the sort of impact, general impact that the pandemic has had on people's lives. But I also think it accelerated the trend we're seeing in leadership. So um, there's good data that, to suggest that social skills generally, you know, being able to deal with people and understanding organization politics and dynamics have become a bigger component of effective leadership over the last 10 to 15 years. Whereas the administrative aspects of leadership have become less important, sounds obvious. But if you go 20 years ago, the HBR was full of strategy and administration sure. and, you know, financial new uh, minutiae, you know, a nuance. Exactly. And exactly. these days it's machines are handling that and it's all about how you manage people. And we've really seen that accelerate, I think, in the pandemic as well. So, you know, we've really seen great leaders benefit and those who suck frankly <laughs> have a more difficult time exactly exactly yeah I'll, we'll get to that in a little bit i think you know as we look at overall organizational design organizational development but i mm. think brought up some great points there about you know engagement hitting and now what's next right so yeah. how, how do we as you know an hr organization or or or, or professional practitioners leaders help the organization deal with that so great. yeah yeah, I think a lot of great takeaways there, Lewis. Um, appreciate that. I kind of wanted to go back to something that you had mentioned, you know, as you were talking about um, this idea of management discipline, right? So um, when we think about, you know, uh, this new workforce, right, being kind of hybrid or fully remote, we think about, you know, leadership teams, management teams that are, that are you know, managing employees, um, maybe never getting the opportunity to see those employees face-to-face. In your opinion, how, how do companies effectively create high-performing teams in this type of environment through the pandemic? What have you seen good companies do? Yeah, I, I think it's very difficult, by the way, if you're not used to doing it, because I think it really requires a completely different pattern and set of habits to, to management. The, the reason is a lot of leaders are used to picking up a lot of informal cues, uh, just being physically present with other people. Uh, you get that soft data from that person doesn't look very happy and you know you can see dynamics uh, with groups of people interacting. You might 
actually physically attend meetings and you can read body language and things like that. And of course, you don't get any of that in the fully remote environment. So if you were using that data as a critical part of your leadership and management strategy, which any sensible person would have been, all of a sudden it's completely gone. Mm. So if people have found it difficult, and again, we, we do a lot of surveys, we find the best way to find out what, people, what challenges people have is to ask them, go figure. And um, line managers have found it really difficult to make that transition or have had found that they've had to invest a lot more time and energy so what have organizations been doing <clears throat> they've been getting their managers to focus on managing and so a lot of organizations kind of had management and leadership roles that were technical people doing technical work that had a management job glued to the side of it that's not become as feasible as it used to, to be. And so we've seen just people management capability being the key and time spent on people management being uh, a really big focus. So it's time and energy invested in people management, in the blocking and tackling of day-to-day -day management and leadership. And that I think has been very difficult for some people because as I say it's a change in pattern and uh, actually a lot of what they were doing before it's a completely new set of stuff also we've seen organizations really starting to ask well what data do we have about our people and how can we better manage in a far more transparent and data-driven way because this is a huge opportunity right like you can't as I said manage by presenteeism you can't just read the room and so you need to look for other data sources and organizations have now been looking to their tech to, to their uh, technology uh, functions and to their hr teams to say hey if we can't see people how can we yeah. know if we're helping them like do their jobs and uh, uh, how's it feel and then last simple stuff just general just rituals around you know bringing teams together you know, the Zoom drinks and all this kind of stuff, why it became cliche. I think it yeah. showed that many organizations actually cared about the social fabric of their communities because organizations are communities at the end of the day. Yeah. So we're seeing, I, I've got, I've been, I think there's going to be a huge boom and continued investment in organization culture. Everything from care packages with the company brand on it being sent to your house to, like I said, you know, these other ways to create less formal connections between people. So you bring up a great point, um, and I want to I want to kind of build off of that last that last comment you made about organizations kind of looking at culture and and how do you how do you create a, a remote culture you know where you don't have the opportunity and the question that I want to ask you really is around your know, associate value proposition, um, and we've seen companies scrambling now right we, so you mentioned the great resignation the great reshuffling you know whatever you want to call it we know there's a lot of people on the move. Uh, and the employees are actually defining, I think now, what that employee experience should look like. And, and you know, data is saying that flexibility is more important than the office perk, you know, the, the, the ping pong table or the free drinks or the free coffee or that care package that you kind of just talked about. Um, so I'm wondering, what are you seeing from a kind of a global perspective? You know, what insights do you have? And then what do organizations, you know, what, what would be the best way for them to focus on really improving the value they're providing to, to you know, potential 
employees or even current employees from an EVP standpoint. Yeah, and so with the work that we're doing and that I've seen some of my colleagues do, I work with a bunch of PhDs and, and uh, some of them have some fantastically uh, interesting ideas. Um, I think there's no one size fits all for this. It would be uh, yeah, an oversimplification to say people want this. Yeah. You can't just a simple way uh, of segmenting the workforce might be people at different uh, socioeconomic levels. Mm -hmm. So, and that generally is divided by type of work, although that's not perfect. But what we are seeing is that um, those on the upper end of the socioeconomic scale are starting to ask themselves, hmm, you know, how do I improve my quality of life? The flexibility really is about them saying, uh, I don't want my life to be all about work and can I live somewhere else? And all these other things that kind of come into their mind about reevaluating what they're doing. And I think that working from home for many of these people has brought so much attention to actually what they do every day. Yeah. You know, it's just like, do I actually like doing this? And um, I think, and do you know what I have? Do I feel like I have real control over my life and all of these other sort of, philosophical questions and so I think there's been a shift there in people saying well I want to have work as part of my life rather than make work my life and that's kind of an interesting dynamic on uh, for for other types of people who for um on the lower on the socioeconomic scale or who are earlier career maybe it's also possible we're seeing the quality of work that those people do. And when I mean quality, I mean, do they find the, uh, that work worth the money yeah. being increasingly important? So I don't think we can get away from the fact that compensation has become an increasingly important factor for people. There's lots of chat about how it's certainly for some sectors, labor has got some of its um, bargaining power back that's such an old school term but we've seen compensation rising quite quickly um but also then just the quality and meaningfulness of the work that, that people do and i actually think that we'll see some acceleration in terms of automation and these other things that will actually help reduce the the burden of some of this work and actually maybe create some more fulfilling maybe more socially driven work you know work the where the interactions with others is more meaningful so there's there's the the basics around compensation for that for that kind of group and then flexibility for the other uh, group but then you know we've seen a rise in interest in does like the idea around meaningful work yeah. and personal growth and um, organizations that are investing in the constant learning and development of their people it's, it's cliche but it's true that this it really matters and it matters even more now because new technologies change the kind of work that people do so quickly yeah. so reskilling becomes an important component of an effective people strategy basically mm -hmm. so those are the sorts of things that we're really seeing as trends and um, i do i do think that we're going to get to an interesting period where particularly early career people who are, uh, you know, let's say in the first five to 10 years of their career, will face this interesting dilemma that they want to be around people that they can learn from, but those people will want to work from home. And so I'm just kind of wondering how that dynamic is going to work out and um, whether or not actually those people who are right now saying, well, it's all about flexibility, 
will enjoy it as much as they think. So let's see what happens. Interesting. Yeah, no, no, that, that's excellent. And I, I want to go back to something that you talked about. You, you, you talked about kind of bringing data into the picture, especially as it relates to, um, you know, kind of leadership um, during the pandemic. Um, you talked about it from an employee engagement standpoint. We hear all the time about how organizations are, are you know, bringing people analytics into the pitch, you know, picture and organizations are actually creating full departments that are dedicated to this now. You know, we, we know some of that can be a little bit, um, you know, smoke and mirrors, right? So uh, what are you seeing from organizations that are doing people analytics right? What are some of the things that they're doing versus other organizations that, you know, might not be moving the needle forward, but might just be, you know, kind of trying to do so here as in this, you know, kind of as we get into this post-pandemic world? Yeah, and this has been a really interesting space to see this evolving. I think it really starts with business problems. And that sounds obvious, but you, you know, the number of HR teams that start with attrition analytics or something, when that's not really a problem that the business is interested in solving, it, it never ceases to amaze me. <laughs> so um when you said, you know, there are some smoke and mirrors, there's some functions that are just saying, well, we're doing analytics, we've got this data, they're basically reporting headcount numbers, and number of people who are left, etc. And then they're trying to run, you know, machine learning or other algorithms on who's going to leave around here. And, you know, how important is that? I, you know, it depends on, on what kind of, maybe right now it's important, but it's, it seems to be the thing that the HR function seems to have been comfortable with up to this point. The, the organizations that are really taking it to the next level are really thinking about, well, what's important to the business leadership? They're thinking about revenue and productivity and they're thinking about talent. And I think those and culture and I think those things have been um, high on the agenda <clears throat> for really progressive people analytics and HR functions for a while now but they're really starting to get ahead of steam and I don't see us actually developing a huge number of new tools and techniques I just don't think we need them so there are two types of data we can use there's active data where we actually go out and gather it most you know that surveys are a good example of that if you want to know what kind of experiences people are having what problems they see in a business or what they find good about it you can ask them it's the most transparent and ethical way of gathering that data that's valid that you can then use to actually generate insights and take actions and it's easy to talk about everyone understands opinions and in large groups people are pretty accurate it turns out wisdom of the crowds actually works um, and then there's obviously the more passive uh, data sets that you can gather and with the acceleration of digital transformation and the adoption of lots of new cloud-based te um, communications technologies internally in organizations you don't need a technology that's taking screen grabs and tracking where the person's mouse is going you just need to see where the communication flows are going and who they're spending time with and uh, that can be an incredibly powerful data set and but you know and you read we have seen examples of that but there's really insight in terms of productivity and connectivity and uh, you know where the relationships are 
And I think we're seeing really progressive people analytics functions start to use that to get insights into what's holding back productivity, et cetera. The last thing I would say is um, on talent. <clears throat> a few years ago, I was telling somebody that I thought that assessment data would be the most valuable data set that organizations would be looking for, like what are our people good at and why? Yeah. And I think we're about to see a boom in assessment. We've seen some new types of assessments come through, you know, uh, where the sort of gamified, et cetera, which is the funification of assessment doesn't add much in terms of accuracy from what I can see sometimes even reduces the level of accuracy because it creates noise in the assessment. But if we're going to have a more skills-based talent strategy in many companies, because we need a more sustainable workforce, so jobs-based organizations are less sustainable because you have to create and destroy the job, or you have to hope the incumbent evolves the job, which is difficult, particularly if you're very hierarchy-driven, right? You're hierarchical. Yeah. Um, then you get layoffs and all these kinds of things. Huge volume of new technologies, very, very quick trans transformation and transition between new tech means yeah. that the incumbent workforce needs to be able to keep up. And so you need m much more data about what these people can actually do. And so I think we will see assessment data being an increasingly important part of people analytics data sets as we try to think through skills, capabilities, not just what we have right now, but what we have the potential to build mm. or what, what's emerging. So all of that stuff, I think, is, is really starting to gain traction. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's great. And, and, you know, one of the things you said, I think that really stuck out is that it's important to really kind of speak the language of the business. So, you know, for those organizations that you know, come into an organization where people analytics isn't there or isn't truly defined, you know, being able to bring, you know, some of those aspects of revenue generation and in productivity and, and culture, you know, to the business, um, you know, will will you know kind of better serve you and allow you to kind of sit at that table. And that's that's really what this podcast is about. So yeah, I mean, all I would say just to add to this, like the um, I have seen a problem where by the HR function turns up with data and says, look, we did all this interesting analysis, and somebody in a senior position just says, well, I disagree. Yeah like with your numbers and then you're it's like you know the the ceo doesn't like your hr data set well my personal experience tells me that the data is wrong and so then the hr function feels a bit like well i don't know why we bothered yeah. so their leadership plays an important role here they actually actually have to believe that you can manage exactly the people element of an organization is there a way that, around right? that lewis right so what what advice would you give leaders that get that pushback because i think that's more common than you know maybe uncommon right so what what advice would you give hr practitioners that kind of hit a wall um when when presenting those topics to leadership well it's like anything the story matters and it's about influence you can't be a player at the most senior level of an organization unless you understand the politics yeah. of senior leadership and there again we said earlier organizations are communities and communities always have politics they're not well, we tend to associate politics with bad stuff as in you know machiavellian manipulation etc but that, that it's not always that it's the process of influence right so those are skills you need 
if you want somebody to listen to you and to understand why you are bringing value to them. And, but at the end of the day, if someone doesn't want to hear your message, you can't force them. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's often a sign that the leadership maturity isn't where it should be. I, I often say, actually, you get the HR, a leader, business leader gets the HR, HR function he or she deserves. Exactly. Because, you know, if you want to treat them like a defunct administrative organization, you know, that's like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, go over there and run payroll and issue parking spaces, you know, uh, then you, you're not going to get a strategically oriented, thoughtful group of people working in that team yeah. so I, I often think that if you look at really strong business leaders who really seem to get it there's a few I can think of it's no surprise they have amazing forward thinking very innovative HR functions because they got the, got the function they deserved yeah that's a great point and I think the pandemic really accelerated a lot of those types of leaders or, or accelerated might be the wrong wrong word but exposed a lot of those leaders based on the response that that organization demonstrated when the pandemic hit. You know, every company says that our, our, our employees are our most you know, valuable asset, but when the rubber hits the road, are you actually backing that up with the right kinds of programs, the right types of you know, policies that are gonna demonstrate that, hey, yeah, we really do you know, believe in our people. So I think that, um, I think the pandemic well, exposed a lot of organizations for having poor leadership at the top. Perhaps, yeah, I mean, I think it's high variability in, uh, <laughs> uh, in leadership quality, but it's also one of those places where there is actually quite a lot of data that's very often ignored. So the key thing in leadership is selection because once the person is in charge, he or she doubles down on their decision-making and will pick other people who are aligned Sure. Uh, to their agenda so it becomes even more difficult if you've put a maniac in charge uh to to unseat that person you just have to go through the process yeah. so that you know and someone said to me you you know you can training and development is often the the solution to a, a poor selection so a lot of leadership development is trying to fix a problem that was created by having a poor selection process in the first place right. And if you create a lot of data about this is the level of leadership capability we've got and, you know, the raw material, et cetera, because organizations are political entities, again, <laughs> you know, that data is often ignored. I, I don't know if you know. conversation just went. I really. Yeah. Oh, so, I mean, so, cause I, this is a fascinating topic because, um, and this is well, generally well known, I think. And I think it's one of, I think it's Bob Hogan that says this. He's the, uh, Robert Hogan's a psychologist. And he said that, you know, the study of leadership was interesting because what Sykes did is they looked across all of a large number of organizations and said, well, what makes someone a leader in these organizations? Yeah. But in order to become a leader in any particular organization, you have to have the unique social and political attributes that enable you to navigate mm -hmm. and and obviously the technical attributes, you have to know how to run. If it's a retail business, you have to know how to run a retail business. Yeah. So the only thing that really unified all of the, the managers and leaders who, you know, who were successful, you know, uh, who rose to the top, and that's how we were defining leadership, became leaders, yeah. was that they were all manipulative 
and um, you know, it, well, some people call them charismatic, but they were they were basically a group of people who knew how to get other people to do what they wanted, and that sometimes can be a double-edged sword, or very often is a double-edged sword. So we, you know, call this kind of trans charismatic leadership. We start teaching to people, and then we realize actually that isn't the 20 years 30 years on the raw material that makes someone really good at generating high performing organizations which is the purpose of leadership the purpose of leadership is to generate a high performing team and organization so it's not about whether or not people like the boss it's whether or not that person actually knows how to get optimal performance out of other people so when you change the definition you start to look for different attributes in a leader and you know, there you can start to see those people now emerging in yeah. um, in organizations like you know Nadella, Satya Nadella is a great example at Microsoft as somebody who yeah. came up through their talent management you know from through their ranks and it's an example of very very high quality leadership capability yeah um, that's fantastic so I, I we, we touched on earlier the new qualities, the new characteristics, the new traits of leadership, uh, especially in a, in a remote type environment or a hybrid environment. Um, you know, what, do you, what do you see? And we, you, you hit on a few traits or, or skills in the last conversation, but what do you see as the most important leadership skill, trait, attribute that organizations should really you know, kind of go all in when it comes to development? You know, what's what's going to help organizations as you move forward? a good question <laughs> uh learnability or so i so i have a bit of a um, mixed feelings so learning agility and all the rest of that stuff sounds nice like people who learn quickly and who can consume information fast and figure out how to deploy it yeah. i think that is universally important i think you also have to be a person who has the disposition because i'm not sure it's a skill to want to constantly find out new things because very often what happens if you require a lot of information if you're a person who is able to do that you then can weaponize it into status to make other people feel stupid and keep yourself in charge so i see that a lot and i worry about that so yeah. the thing that inspires people is if you're just constantly like don't you think this is amazing like you know wow that didn't work at all why do you think that is you know those people who are like these those are the kind of leaders who are like just constantly uh, looking for the for the next uh, question and uh, interesting idea and I think that's vitally critical in the modern era the reason I said I wasn't sure is because I think problem solve that's a function like problem solving you know yeah. is yeah. Uh, an interesting set of capabilities that's linked to this I think problem finding is perhaps a more important skill as in the leaders we lionize and celebrate the most are the ones who seem to have picked the most interesting and powerful problems and are good at getting other people to solve like to come along and solve them yeah. it's not that they're not involved but yeah. you know if you think about some of the innovators that we're really obsessed with as a um, like at least media is mm -hmm. they've picked really these big interesting problems i'm not even sure that many of them are are that important but this but people are get excited about them. Like, sure. I get why space is interesting, 
but the planet's on fire. So yeah. I would rather someone fix that. Go up for ten minutes, right? Yeah. yeah, you know. So it's like you know, I I guess yeah. everyone has there, to have. Is there a curiosity that needs to be part of you know, in, in, in built in that that drives that type of finding new problems and continuous learning? Is that something that maybe? Yeah, I, you know, I like curiosity as a word. I mean, I think that that is a critical leadership attribute yeah. the reason I paused short of it is because I often think people think of curiosity as a characteristic or a personality attribute I, I guess you can kind of foster it but I think there are skills you can teach people yeah. in to use some work that we did here in Singapore so we do a lot of work with the government here it's a very progressive government um and one of the things we did is we we have a skills ministry. It's not a ministry; it's a stat board. It's um it's called Skills Future Singapore, and it's a government entity that's designed to help create a skills competitive economy, because that's all that we have in Singapore. We're a small yeah. island with people uh, that have had a very very good education system and uh, infrastructure, city of the future, and we designed a, a what we call sort of like a soft skills framework a critical core skills uh framework and we called this frame these skills the skills to build skills so they're the fundamental building blocks of of what enables you then to be uh to build technical skills and within that framework then i am always thinking about these are only skills if you can really learn and develop them and that's critical for me. So self-management, adaptability. I think there are ways you can train yourself to have these kinds of characteristics to make yourself more relevant and effective. I think you are heavily disposed to have some of these skills naturally if you're a curious person with limited ego. <laughs> exactly. Which I think matters, by the way. <laughs> that's a big one. You know, Lewis, so, you know, we get a lot of, uh, obviously, you know, leaders in the HR, uh, you know, profession that kind of view and listen to our podcast here. But outside of that, we also have a lot of, you know, students who are, you know, kind of learning the field for the first time or, or looking to sort of break into the field. In your opinion, where do you see the white space in the field of HR today? Where's that area that, you know, folks can kind of come in and make the biggest impact? Oh, great question. Okay, so my instinct is um, is to say that you know the HR function I think has benefited from a huge amount of investment in tech so the huge booming HR technology industry which we desperately needed and I think has been really really uh, beneficial but it's still very fragmented and from my standpoint, there's still it's a lot of space for really good HR architecture. I see many HR functions not quite being designed in a way that would make them able to deliver the full promise that actually the, the, the people in those functions are capable of. And it's partly because we haven't yet figured out how to put the function together with all the new technologies and innovations, etc. So I think there's a huge opportunity still, at least um, Mercer sees this as well, because we are continue to invest in HR transformation as a service line, mm -hmm. because what we notice is organizations are really hungry to move their HR functions forward quickly. And they have this problem, which is that we've not quite we've got potential 
Yeah. We understand we've got some great kit, we've got some really great people. We just need to kind of tweak it a bit and, and get it all in the right space. And I think that's, um, I think there's, you know, for the strategic, actually, I think learning HR, thinking strategically how to put the whole function together and how the bits work together. Yeah. I think that's really important for people coming into the industry to understand, to see it as a whole and the value chain almost of, of HR. Uh, and really spend some time thinking about that and think about how that will change and evolve uh, as um, uh, as innovation continues in the space. So that's kind of one area. The other, the job skills assessment connection, I think is very, very important and is not really well d done right now. So job design as a an area that the HR function gets involved in. How do we create work? So one of the things I often talk to organizations about is, so how much advice do you give line managers about performance management? And they say loads, we've got all these decks and this training and this form. And so, okay, great, okay. How much advice do you give them about how to build meaningful, engaging work? So like actually design a job that someone wants to do. And they're like, well, none. So exactly. So, so I find this quite entertaining because it's like, well, surely that would matter. That's the thing that predicts performance. And we don't give managers any advice about that. We just say, write down the list of stuff to get done, put it in a job description and give it to someone. And actually, we're usually more bothered about whether or not the job description sounds nice rather than whether or not the job is well designed. So there's a whole piece of work there. And um, jobs are and then there's this transition to jobs becoming roles to skills clusters yeah. and then so what is a skills-based talent strategy that's still very emerging area complete white space to your question and then the last piece is so then how do we know if we're taking a skills-based talent strategy that people have skills capabilities potential and so we need better data so that value chain i still think has tremendous runway yeah, so, I, and it's really interesting and then that's incredible. And I think it, it speaks to an article that I read, I think that you wrote, and it was a recent article here in October that really talked about, again, what we had discussed earlier around, you know, just folks leaving now, we're kind of at the second half of this pandemic, if you will, hopefully, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw, um, you know, a lot of employees kind of staying put, you know, they were comfortable where they were, but now we're seeing, you know, individuals, um, you know, kind of, you know, start their own career or, or try to find more purposeful work and meaningful work. So I think that's incredible that, you know, money's important. You, you can do that. You can throw money at them, but there has to be these other engagement pieces as well. Um, so, you know, the recreation of a job description that's meaningful, I think, is um, going to be critical as we sort of move forward and beyond this. this, uh, this yeah. And I think it's important for people to really think through as to what, what, what is meaningful right? Because it's a different definition for everybody. So um, like meaning, so the, the key thing to know, I think about meaning is the meaning of meaning is that meaning connects things. So it's really about connection. Meanings connect concepts. So when something is meaningful, you mean it is connected. And the more meaningful it is, the, the higher the, le the connection is to something that is important, right? Yeah. So usually the, the bigger impact. And it's almost always, 
when people describe meaning relative to something uh, to something social so what i mean by that is is rel is uh, about other people so um you know when you when, when if someone th finds something meaningful because it's valuable they often mean that other people see it as good mm -hmm. and which is interesting because that changes over time what people think is valuable what good is yeah. is socially constructed so i um so, so right now if you work for an organization that is in climate sustainability or mm -hmm. you know a, a pursuing the dei agenda or something like that you might see that as meaningful whereas maybe 20 years ago people were were less interested in that and interested in something else so i think those things are also really important but people also experience meaning through a sense of self-worth through a yeah. sense of you know making an impact having you know uh, sort of sense of efficacy so there are many ways that people experience that sure that's great. We do. We really didn't even touch the DEI, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, but it plays such an important role in engagement. You know, as you look at, you know, how do you keep your your employees connected with their hearts and their minds for the organization? Um, so, any any thoughts on, you know, from from a change perspective and a DEI? I think everybody, uh, you know, and their brother and their mother and their father and their sister are doing, you know, some type of bias training now. You know, based on what's been going on over the past you know, year and a half, but what's the most important thing organizations can do to really set themselves up to, to have a truly you know, diverse and, and inclusive organization? Yeah, I, I think, you know, this one's a journey. I think um, the most important thing they can do is to create structures that are fair and to make, because you know, no matter how much bias training you do, you, you cannot ignore the fact like you're, you, the mental shotgun that still occurs. What I mean by that is, is that if you, you can't ignore that the, uh, someone is a man or someone is a woman or uh, it occurs to you that way, you, you can't switch that off in your brain. And if you bring, if, if because of your experiences, that brings certain pre- conceived ideas about mm -hmm. that person it's very difficult for you to switch those off you can be aware of them um but many people aren't as you know that's the point of the training if it's un yeah. if it's unconscious it's difficult to, to train it out so yeah. structures that address this this is also why i think there's a tremendous opportunity for you know ai and some of the new technologies because just in the simplest level if you you're using a digital interview yeah. with an ai algorithm that's trained in a fair way then the computer doesn't see uh it just sees data it doesn't see it doesn't make any um attributions of, of the characteristics of the person it's just looking at data and the second thing is, is if it turns out to be biased, you can fix it because <laughs> you can query, you can actually look at it. If you've got 5,000 people who are all interviewing and they turn out to be biased, retraining them all is a huge investment. One computer is much easier to intervene on. So interesting. Yeah. that's what I mean by structures, right? You know, we talk a lot about, about how AI, there's all this bias in the, in the technology, et cetera. That's often because the data that these technologies are trained on is from people and cool. people are biased. So yeah. it's like, okay, but you can then start to see that exactly in yeah. outcomes and start to say, ah, and then start to change it. So 
that's far more transparent. And I think, you know, there's a lot of effort right now to try and say, how do we be more transparent? How do we create better structures? That's good. That get us the outcomes that we want. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I know we're getting close. We're bumping up on the time and, and Lewis, we can't thank you enough for, you know, taking some time with us this morning and uh, man, my, my page here is full. I don't know about you, Chris. I've taken so many notes and so many takeaways from yeah. our conversation, but being the forward-looking strategic podcast that we try to be, Lewis, we got to leave you with one question here, um, and it's really around the future of work. So where do you see the future of work going over the next three to five years? Cool. That's a good question. I, I think what we will see is that the concern around jobs disappearing because of the impact of influence of new technologies, uh, it actually becomes less uh, of an issue because what's gonna happen is that the pandemic will accelerate the adoption of new ways of working that will unlock new levels of productivity. And that I am tremendously optimistic actually about the next three to five years that we will see a better quality of life overall for many people once we get through many of the difficulties that people are experiencing right now, partly because we'll be forced into adopting technologies much faster than I think we would have done without the current yeah. you know, uh, environment. Yeah. And I think that will be very, very uh, beneficial. I, I, I think longer term, like I say, let's you know, work without jobs, my, my colleague Raven has just written a book it's called Work Without Jobs and it's to this point that actually the job will disappear and basically will be bundles of skills moved around to where the work is and I, I think that has been pulled forward too. I don't think it's a three to five year horizon but I think it's time for people to really start thinking about what capabilities do they have and, and do they really know how to combine those capabilities with other people's right. skills. So you are not going to be a lone island of person who can solve all the problems on your own. You know, you've got your specialist skill set and you just go deep on this. The big problems, the interesting ones are going to be solved by combining people with different capabilities. And so being able to see another person's point of view and combine it with your own will be even more important than it was in the past. Wow. Mine, yeah, that gives you something to think about. So that's fantastic. And on that note, Lewis, thank you so much for joining us for our, our podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time. Um, it is late where you're at in Singapore, and you did mention you've got a two-year-old sleeping in the background. So Yeah, he's still asleep. Success. Oh, so, yes, all great, good. Great. Thank you. Yeah, so we can't thank you enough. Thank you once again for joining us again. Uh, fantastic conversation. And as always on the HR Evolution, we will see you next time. Thank you.